Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Ron Dart. He teaches in the Department of Political, Political Science, Philosophy, and Religious Studies at the University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. He is very prolific. He's authored many, many books, 35 of them, co-authored or co-authored, including The North American High Tory Tradition, and Christianity and Pluralism. Uh, today's topic is a book that just came out. It's a collection of essays from different contributors, including Professor Dart uh, with an intro and, and a tr contribution by him entitled Myth and Meaning in Jordan Peterson. So it's a collection of essays on this Jordan Peterson phenomenon. Professor Dart, thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be with you. All right, well, uh, the quote on page three really gives us a rationale for the book, quote, this book is an attempt to understand from a Christian perspective what has caused so many people to resonate with Peterson. I mean, Peterson is this international phenomenon that hit a few years ago, but the book implies that the form of Christianity, somehow how Christianity is addressed by Peterson or comes through Peterson, is an important part of his appeal. Is that correct? Yes, I think very much. I think you've hit the nail on the head wisely and well. And so Peterson is very, very much a lot of his lectures, his thinking going back decades. Is sort of, he's like a Virgil, sort of pointing towards the ultimate, towards Christianity. He himself has not taken that step. But a lot of the myths and the archetypes, his uh, exegesis of the Bible, um, Old Testament, uh, New Testament, is very much uh, leaning in that particular direction. And many, many uh, Christians, some who have come out of a, a fairly reformed background with a more literal grammatical approach to the Bible, have been very much taken by uh, Peterson's much more um, sophisticated and nuanced exegesis that you will find certainly in the Roman Catholic tradition with its fourfold notion of exegesis. His, his attempt to say that merely to understand Christianity through a creedal confessional background without it having um, any meaningful existential relationship to how we live, how we understand ourselves, uh, the darker, the shadow side, how we have to face into that, like Dante going down uh, into the inferno, the journey downward, the journey upward. He works on all these great classical myths found within 
uh, at their best, the Christian tradition, but also found in other uh, religious philosophical traditions also. So there's something very intellectual about what he's doing, but also very, very experiential as well that speaks to people who probably want to go deeper in their faith of self-understanding and then apply that practically in their lifestyle as well. Right. I, I think what you said about the existential side of Christianity gets us into Kierkegaard, which we'll talk about in a, in a few minutes, because one of the entries in the volume does talk about Peterson and Kierkegaard. But let me begin with one of the opening essays in the book. It's by Bruce Ashford, which says that one of the primary advances in Peterson's work has been, quote, to unmask secular modernity. What is it about secular modernity that Peterson's work and lectures have unmasked? Well, I, I mean, modernity or secularism can go in a variety of directions, but one more ideological path it's taken is a negation, either negation of spirituality and religion or a subordinating of spirituality and religion. And for those who come from a commitment to um, a religious background of one form or another, the notion that somehow it has to be banished or marginalized or subordinated and the ideology of a hard or aggressive secularism sits on the throne, Peterson comes along, basically says, the emperor has no clothes on here. And this is, uh, this is very much a cyclops way of seeing, a one-eyed way of seeing the sort of one-dimensional secularism. And so his openness uh, to the great myths of Christianity and, and other religions and what that means in terms of one's spiritual journey and adventure and pilgrimage through time, he deconstructs a certain form of secular modernity uh, and, and says it blinds people to a much greater reality of which world civilizations of the past and today still uh, see as essential to what it means to be human and live a, a meaningful and authentic life. Ashford also states that while Peterson, quote, recognizes New Testament teaching as vital to the West's growth and health, he refuses to affirm it's truth. And this is a big issue with a lot of people who, who criticize Peterson or who, who query Peterson. Why doesn't Peterson take the step into the truth of the New Testament? Well, I think for Peterson, and I think part of the appeal of him for people coming from a more skeptical, cynical, doubting Thomas perspective, is the way he lives in this tension between doubt, seeking understanding, but not yet committed uh, to the fullness of faith. It's probably important to understand uh, Peterson's understanding of logos in the his particular read of it, and there's various ways of understanding that Greek term. It could mean a rational principle. It can be uh, meaning in terms of a, um, a more uh, uh, authentic way of living. For him, the logos is this dynamic reality that comes to people in their potential both for the good and for the, the evil or for mediocrity and calls forth, uh, calls forth 
the good in that sense, the true and the beautiful. And so for him, truth in that even the Greek sense, aletheia, uh, is a dynamic reality that cannot be reduced to just cognitive intellectual acts of faith. It has to have some dynamic existential experiential reality. And so this is, I think, where people who are coming from a Christian background, if they're expecting him to sort of be in the Dante sense, Bernard de Clairvaux or Beatrice, he's more like a Virgil on his own journey and where he is going, going to end up. Um, it, it, we, we don't know because he lives in this this uh, longing longing for the ultimate, a desire to live from that place, and yet a deep, almost modern or postmodern skepticism as well. And so it's in this tension that uh, I think a lot of uh, people are drawn to him, and then they do ask these questions you're asking itself. Well, why don't you take the next step then? You can still maintain legitimate doubt, as any great thinker does, faith-seeking understanding from Anselm or Augustine. Uh, but why are you hesitating at the door when, in fact, all the goods are before you, the table is spread wide, the bounty is there, the wine is there to drink, as is the bread? What's the hesitation? Yeah. And, you know, Peterson isn't the kind of easygoing pluralist relativist. Alastair Roberts points out that Peterson doesn't just emphasize free speech, you know, the openness, uh, marketplace of ideas. He also emphasizes, quote, truthful speech. It's very important to be committed to the truth. That. I think that shows the the uneasiness of, of where of where Peterson stands, but also we've got we've got the profound conviction as well. We've got the depth of commitment to to what is real, what is meaningful, and what is truthful there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's certain element of the liberal tradition which holds high. Uh, free speech, as you say, but for him, that's a rabbit's trail that leads to sheer fragmentation because everyone's understanding of the content of freedom is going to splinter in a multiplicity of directions. His concern, and this is why you were asking the earlier question about truth, is it's far more important than free speech, is what's the purpose of freedom? What's the telos of freedom in that sense? Well, it's truth. Uh, and so, that, but, but then what is the nature of truth? And this is part of his his uh, ongoing journey and pilgrimage, sort of into the uh, homeland of truth. And uh, but that's an important distinction because some people see that Peterson's just part of the free speech movement, uh, and he isn't. His commitment is to truthful speech. But then the question you ask: What is truthful speech? And this is where he's always grappling with the notion of the logos, the dynamic nature of reality as it comes to call people uh, out of uh, out of perhaps their mediocrity, their passivity, their cynicism, their skepticism into who they're meant to be. And that involves struggle. It involves facing the, the worst elements within ourselves as well as the best. And this is why people like Dostoevsky are very important, as is Kierkegaard to, to um, Jordan Peterson, because these are these are people who struggle with the meaning of self-understanding and transformation uh, into what they might yet be. You know, when Peterson resisted this law in Ontario, 
about pronouns that really prescribed how you will use pronouns. That's when he got his back up and he simply would not bend. Now, the University of Toronto, his institution, sent him a, a couple of letters saying, look, you better knock this off because you're violating the law and you're also violating University of Toronto regulations. Now, why didn't Peterson just lighten up and go with the flow and relax? Why didn't he just go quiet? What, what was it about him that said no? Well, I think that might relate to your previous question is, well, probably there's two things at work. There's a tendency of academics to sit around the campfire, uh, talk to one another, publish articles, publish books, do the, the conference uh, circuit, but you know, almost in a monastic way, uh, stay quite distant from the more uh, intense public culture wars. And uh, Peterson, like an earlier C.S. Lewis, for example, who could have stayed at Oxford, he'd done an er his earlier allegory of love and the notion that he would write more popular books or go on the BBC. This was a, a demeaning of the academic profession, uh, becoming more populist. And Peterson has done, he could have stayed, as you say, he could have stayed in the Department of Psychology at U of T. He could have continued all his articles, uh, done the conference round and become the, the junkie in terms of one more article, one more book. Uh, uh, but he he thought something more important was at work than staying in that's what Milton said. I cannot I cannot praise a cloistered virtue that never sallies forth. And there can be a cloistered virtue at universities even though they're pulled, obviously, in different ways ideologically, but they don't sally forth into very demanding and controversial issues where you know you're going to be fired at uh, in the public domain. Uh, but for Peterson, this notion of truth, uh, and particularly the importance of the individual in true speech or the sovereignty of the individual being true to what they know is important against a herd mentality, uh, and this is the danger of, of a certain type of ideology. Uh, it can become very herd-like. Herd you get this in social justice warriors. He sees it at a, obviously a more enlarged area, former communism. This is why his interest in Solzhenitsyn, fascism, Nazism. And he sees it being played out, obviously, in not as gruesome a way as that, but within elements of the progressive left, as well as in the alt-right, the light-right, uh, and he maintains the centrality of critical thinking, and this is where his doubting side comes in as well, grappling with the truth as much as he can understand it in any given time against a herd mentality that essentially hunkers down, hoofs in the ground, and says, we know what it's all about, and then the content of that can be very, um, very um, damning to not only the human soul, uh, but the people who have stopped thinking critically about truthful issues. You know, th this jumps ahead to Stephen Dunning's essay on Peterson and Kierkegaard. And we have the quote uh, by Kierkegaard, the crowd is untruth. Would Peterson agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the crowd themselves, their end is groupthink, not truth. And so I think. Uh, I mean, you can have communities of thoughtful, engaged interaction on truthful issues, 
Peterson would applaud that and a green light and go. But there can be the herd mentality uh, that we find again and again in elements of religious communities, political communities, educational communities, many types that uh, have stopped thinking at a certain point, and then the dangerous aspects of that, both for themselves and then the community itself. So Kierkegaard, uh, like a Nietzsche, because as you know, um, uh, Peterson has done a lot of work on Nietzsche, largely because of his interest in Carl Jung, who did a five-year seminar on Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra. Uh, and so Nietzsche was very suspicious of the crowd, the mindless herd. And uh, Peterson draws from that element. And then, of course, Dostoevsky himself imprisoned in Siberia, uh, his fear, his being a victim of herd mentality, uh, being rescued at the last moment from being shot, the impact of that on him. So, yes, uh, what what Peter does, Peterson does, he begs of his listeners, as he does of himself, because he's the hardest on himself. Um, but he asks also of those who are interested in what he's doing, that they remain deeply truthful to who they're meant to be and the nature at times of that torturous journey, which he would share with Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, uh, Nietzsche, and people like that. Your own contribution, uh, you say on page 84, that Peterson's audience is not fellow, at this point in his career, is not fellow scholars and teachers. It is, quote, those who are personally and culturally disoriented. Was was this in Peterson's mind when he began his public career? Yeah, you know, you look at his first big tome, um, Maps of Meaning, and underneath it, even when he does his exegesis of Genesis that he did in 217, those themes are already at work at that uh, 1999 work, which probably anyone should read if they want to understand the bigger philosophical um inching towards theological uh, insights of Peterson. And for him, there is a there's many tensions in life, but one is the tension between chaos and order, and uh, both within the human soul and society. And chaos, he understands in terms of uh, no sense of order or structure uh, in which people make up their own meaning and they can change it from day to day like people turn uh, change clothes. That leads to uh, almost a democratization of desires in which any desire is given the freedom to indulge itself, but also broadly speaking in a social cultural level, it leads to chaos. And for him, order in a truthful sense, not just order for the sake of order, but order guided by aletheia and logos, as understood in a dynamic existential sense, is foundational. So yes, this tension between order and chaos, and when is chaos appropriate to deconstruct an unhealthy notion of order? And when, and so it's this ongoing tension in Peterson amongst sort of like unity and diversity, freedom and form, chaos and order. And for those who only read him in a simplistic way, they totally misunderstand the dynamic tensions he's living within. Did this focus on, on in individuals who are having trouble in, in their lives, did that originate in, 
in his clinical work? Well, what was his first clinical work? Wasn't he was involved with troubled youth? Yes, Peterson has worked a lot with youth and adults over the last few decades who are in the midst of crisis, uh, internal disorientation, uh, who have lived through tragedy, lived through suffering, are trying to make sense of it without capitulating into cynicism and passivity and impotence. Uh, his attempt to call forth something much deeper, he would call that the image of God within people. Uh, his, he, he sees in people immense potential for good, but also uh, for mediocrity and for evil. And it's again one of those tensions is, is how, given the practical work he's been in, as well as the academic, because in that sense, he's a pastor of souls uh, who cares for people on their all-too-human journey, and he knows the tension uh, of trying to live genuinely and authentically, and the demons people have to face within, and the pain that that involves, the transformation, the going to places they may not want to go. But yeah, so he comes from two wings in terms of dealing with this. One would be academic, and then one would be very personal and very practical. And as a psych, uh, you know, as a therapist, working with people uh, over the decades, even when he was doing his doctoral studies, part of it was a practicum to work with people, uh, you know, who were who had been living through very painful journeys. So his is not just an academic study of. Uh, dislocation, disorientation, but not being knit together with people who are living through that and assisting them in some small way to take the next step towards the light in their journey from the shadows and the darkness. Lawrence Brown's essay turns to Peterson's lectures on Genesis, which ended up being posted on YouTube, and they pretty quickly passed one million page views. Uh, why were those Genesis lectures so doggone popular? Yes, Lawrence was a former student of mine. Um, interestingly enough, he, like many, ha has he grew up in a fairly conservative evangelical form of Christianity. He'd left it behind because as a very thoughtful person, he's now doing graduate studies in Ottawa, uh, it just made no sense to him anymore. The uh, literalism when it came to certain reads of Genesis and creation and a whole range of things. And so, but it was through Peterson's lectures in Genesis. I remember sitting with Lawrence many times. He took a variety of classes with me, and he, it was like lights went on as he listened as Peterson lectured one after the other, the 12 lectures on Genesis. And he gives. Uh, he gives, you know, within, within the broadly speaking Catholic tradition in the, in the broad sense of that, there's four ways of interpreting, it's actually six of interpreting texts, the literal, allegorical, tropological, and anagogical. Uh, but what Peterson does, he leans in the tropological or the moral direction of saying, what do these stories mean, not as interesting artifacts of the past, but what do they speak to each person on their journey, whether it's the Cain who can be angry and bitter and cynical and kill the 
the innocent contemplative Abel? What does the Ab what does the Noah and the Ark say about holding a family and a community together in the midst of the storms of life? What does the Abraham myth say about saying yes to being called to live a life of greater uh, adventure in that sense? So each of the 12 lectures, interesting they're 12, just as uh, the 12 lectures, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 the 12 uh, rules, um, uh, in that sense, he's using 12 as a portal into the deeper truths of the Bible, the human soul, the human journey. So I think um, in that sense, Lawrence's chapter, understandably so, it has freed, if, if a person comes from a secular background and basically They've been told the Bible is this outdated literal text that, you know, young earth creation and you to read everything literally and it has no, it doesn't speak to a person in any significant way on their journey. And can you verify or falsify these events in the past? Well, so what at a certain point? For those who come from a reform background with a literal grammatical approach, but doesn't speak to them existentially. Uh, what Peterson's lecture in Genesis does in Lawrence's particular chapter, he goes through the 12 lectures Peterson does on Genesis, and bit by bit, whether it's the early chapters of Genesis, uh, moving on, obviously, to the Cain-Abel, you've got the Noah, you've got the Abraham, Abraham is hospitality when you're in Sodom and Gomorrah, how do you invite the neighbor in rather than rejecting the stranger, the outcast. There's so many uh, perennial themes in the way Peterson has exegeted or unpacked Genesis in a tropological or moral sense. Uh, I was just uh, a few days ago watching the um, the uh, the dialogue between Peterson and Bishop Barron, and Barron um, said very directly to Peterson, you know, your whole approach is so grounded. I mean, you're approaching it through a psychological mythic tradition, but you walk further down that psychological mythic, you're right into the Catholic tropological moral. You're trying to ask what's the relevance of this text for self-understanding and transformation and life in community and living a more genuine life. So I think Lawrence, Lawrence has taken Peterson's 12 lectures on Genesis, succinctly summarized them and said, this is the relevance of Peterson for, for people in their journey, for society. So don't dismiss this great text, secularism, one direction, or reduce it reduce it to simply a literal grammatical read. Um, and so I think this is this is why the lectures in Genesis have done so well. And then Lawrence's particular chapter has just taken off like a rocket. Yeah. Uh, last question, Ron. According to Peterson, what happens to us? This, this gets to the final pages of the book. What happens to us when we refuse to acknowledge evil? Well, I think, yeah, that's Matthew and Joy's chapter, very nicely, nicely written chapter indeed. Uh, what happens when people repress Jungian way, um, the shadow or Christian sense, the old Adam, the old Eve, they deny it. Uh, it can come out in some very um, dangerous ways uh, in terms of how people are treated. If they can't acknowledge 
they can be quite deceptive and calculating in the name of using the good to serve their own ends. Of course, uh, another great myth of Genesis is evil appears not with tails and horns, but as an angel of light. Uh, and so what Matthew and Joy uh, are trying to get at in that fine chapter is to say, beware of obvious darkness within. That's easy to pick up, even though it can take uh, quite a struggle to face it, but beware of the subtler elements of the darkness, the old Adam, the old Eve, or the sinful self within, which can beguile a person even into thinking they're doing what is right, uh, good, true, and beautiful, but that will be twisted by the ego and darkness itself uh, to serve destructive ends. And so um, sometimes well, people will excessively focus on the, the physical element of um, egocentricity, but there are psychological and spiritual dimensions in which people use, uh, use others psychologically to serve their own ends rather than caring for them as people selflessly, or they'll use religion uh, to serve their, their own ends. And if people don't face those elements subtler nature of evil, immense destruction can only come to that person. And we've seen that played out many ways the 20th century. Uh, even sadly so, I think for uh, many, I have many dear friends who've worked very closely over the years with Jean Vanier and Larche, and some of those tragic stories, a very dear person who has served and helped many, and yet this other element, this darker side, and the implications of that. And of course, his spiritual director suffered the same fate in that sense. So one has to be very careful, and this is where Peterson and good psychology and Carl Jung and many others like that, they're willing to go to places of the shadow, the dark, the sinful, the old Adam, the old Eve, and say, that's not going to go away. That's going to be there throughout the whole journey. So then how do we deal with it in the context of uh, human community? The book is Myth and Meaning in Jordan Peterson, A Christian Perspective. Ron Dart, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.